Good morning, Georgetown Christian. Last week, we began walking through Matthew chapter 3 together. John the Baptist comes bursting onto the scene, commanding his listeners to repent. To understand the word repent, we examine the actions of King David. We saw him take the first step of repentance. Uh, We remember that the first step of repentance is recognizing a wrong or a sin in our lives. We also observed uh, through Jesus' teaching and through many human accounts that our first response is typically to see someone else's sin first. That's our first response. We concluded that the first step to repentance is recognizing our wrongs. If you would open your scriptures to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll be in Genesis chapter 3 as well. I'm going to pray. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word given to your church to help us become people just like you. Speak to our hearts this morning by your spirit and by your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As a quick review, we were examining 2 Samuel, not 1st. Thank you, those of you that noticed. How many of you noticed? Bonus points, right? Okay, thank you guys uh, that noticed. Uh, Teresa, could I ask you real quick, uh, Simmons, um, I just saw a guest who I happen to personally know with a kid, elementary age. Would you help her find her way? The, yeah, I think they shot off to the office wing. Thank you, Teresa. Um, okay, Second Samuel twelve five. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. And we all know who this man is, right? He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. And Nathan says to David, you are the man. Not you are the man in a good way. You are the man who's committed this sin. So our first step to repentance is recognizing our wrong. Matthew's gospel gives us a picture of the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the middle and the end, the culmination of Jesus' ministry. But that whole ministry begins with John the Baptist's ministry. And wouldn't you think it was a, would be really important if both of those ministries, together to do the same thing, began the same way, with the same word? Now, what if that word was then woven into the ministry of the apostles? And then what if that word was the genesis of the church That would be a critical word for us to understand, wouldn't it? This is why we examine and we explore and we try to undo all of the makings that go into the word that they didn't even have. Of course, they had a different word, our English word, repentance. So we're going to look at repentance a few more Sundays. I believe that repentance is more than just recognizing the wrong in our lives. And I believe that you'll see that today through four case studies. Somewhere around kindergarten, I think, it's probably kindergarten, maybe first grade. If you're a teacher, you know it when you see it. 
If you're a parent or a grandparent, you're well aware. Somewhere around there, we all develop this ability to say sorry without really meaning it. And maybe some of you have had uh, the very unpleasant experience uh, of trying to referee like a herd of kids and someone has been wronged. You've probably shared that experience. You, you think coaxing that apology out of that kid is probably the right thing to do until it comes out like this with a giant eye roll. Sorry. Have you guys been there? Have you coaxed the apology and you've received the huff and the sigh and the eye roll and the clear indication that there's nothing about that child that is sorry, right? Or how about the adult version? This may be nails on a chalkboard if you're anything like me. I'm sorry if you were offended. Am I right? Anybody? Right? Like when I hear that, my brain explodes because in the entirety of that statement, though there is the word, there is nothing repentant or even remotely sorry about that, is there? Not even a hint of sorrow in the phrase. There is clearly more to repentance than sorry, and there is more to repentance than recognizing the wrong or the sin in our lives. So four different case studies for us to look at our next step of repentance. Case study number one is in Genesis 3. If you would turn there, I'm going to ask you guys to follow along. If you've got an NIV, that's what I'm reading because that's what we have under the chairs. It's what will be on the screen. I'm going to ask at the end of this, how did Adam and Eve cope with their sin problem, with their nakedness, with their unwillingness to do what God said. So I'm going to be asking you to reflect as I read this to discover what the next step might look like. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the Lord, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. And marriage was never the same. (laughs) Adam and Eve hid and they sewed clothes for themselves, right? So on the scale of like repentance, okay, we've got a zero to 10, a Likert scale. Let's say zero being where, where we're, we're saying, sorry, or I'm sorry if you're offended. And let's say 10 being, uh, Father, I've, I've sinned greatly against you and my brother or sister, please forgive me. I think that Adam and Eve are somewhere effectively near, I didn't do, you know, it's all her fault right? I think that's where we find Adam and Eve, and, that, and now we're examining closely how do they handle their sin problem, because 
Before there was that little blame game, there was shame, wasn't there? Shame is like the recognition that something's wrong. Sometimes, I won't say that wholly that is shame. But how did Adam and Eve cope with their sin problem? How did they handle the fact that they did eat from that tree of knowledge of good and evil? Maybe, uh, maybe we could ask the question differently. Who are they trusting? Who did they trust to fix their sin problem? What was their response when they heard God walking through the garden? Did they trust God to fix their sin problem? Okay, so let's apply this method of examination, you want to call it, to case study two, a different text. I'm in Matthew 27 now. I'm going to set it up just for a minute if you want to follow along. Make sure I'm actually in Matthew 27 today, okay? So I'm in Matthew 27, and we're, we're looking at Judas' betrayal of Jesus. So before that time, if you remember any of Jesus' ministry, he really didn't get along with the chief priests, the Pharisees, or the Sadducees. There was not a lot of, glad we're in this together, right? They were clashing, so much so that the chief priests were beginning to develop a plan with their temple guard so that they could capture Jesus and get rid of him, right? Well, Judas decided he wanted to be in on this plan. At some point, Judas went to them and said, I'll tell you when you can find him alone. Because remember, Jesus was very popular with the people. So Judas takes the 30 pieces of silver, and on the night of uh, the Last Supper, Judas leads the chief priests and the temple guards to Jesus when he's just with his apostles. So that's where we are in Matthew 27. I'm reading verses 3 through 5 on the screen as well. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He says, I have sinned, for I have betrayed innocent blood. And their response? What is that to us? That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and he hanged himself. So applying that same framework of interpretation, when Judas recognized his own sin, which he did, right? First step of repentance, Judas recognized the wrong he had done. But who did Judas trust? How did Judas go about fixing his sin problem? Ultimately, where was his trust placed when it came time, when he realized and he recognized there's sin, there's wrong, there's a problem, it's got to get fixed? Who did Judas trust? I think we could agree that Judas went for DIY redemption, didn't he? Now, I don't know if anyone else in here has ever found themselves in kind of a mess and tried to fix it yourself only to make an even larger mess. Nobody wants to admit that. I totally get it. But I'll just be the guy that admits that um, I made a mistake one time. It was back in the fifth grade, okay? <laughs> I know, great transparency here, right? That in the fifth grade, my best friend and I were, <clears throat> we were left home uh, at his parents' house um, on a Saturday, I think I'd stayed the night, and they lived in a farmhouse surrounded by fields in the midst of great oaks, and it was late fall, uh, really cold, but leaves still on the ground. 
and dry enough that the minute his parents were out of the driveway, we're outside under the playhouse and we're lighting leaves on fire, right? I mean, what else are boys gonna do when you leave them home alone? Like, they're gonna light stuff on fire, duh, right? So we're out there lighting stuff on fire and we're lighting leaves and they're dry and this is great. Who doesn't love fire, especially unsupervised fire? So we're lighting them on fire and we encounter this problem where the wind is blowing the leaves and it's kind of going out Super frustrating, but no worries, we're gonna fix our problem. We found a 32 ounce mason jar in one of the barns somewhere. So we bring it out and stick it under the playhouse and jam the leaves in it and we're getting twigs involved now. We're gonna make a great fire, right? But another problem, like it won't stay lit. Never fear, we can fix our problem, right? We'll fix our own problem. So we uh, make our way into one of the barns on the property and we find a can of gasoline, of course, uh, that's flammable. So we go back under the playhouse with our 32 ounce mason jar full of twigs and twigs and leaves, fill it full of gasoline. And when we light that, guess what? We've got a good fire and it stays lit now, right? So like at the top of this mason jar, there's this thin blue flame that, uh, new problem, it's a little too hot for us. So we have to get longer sticks and we're like this tall and now our sticks are like this tall. And at some point we're putting our sticks in the mason jar and we knock it over and we have a 10 foot circle of fire that has no problem staying lit now. New problem to fix. We grab the hose and we shoot the hose on it and now the fire is spreading, be it gasoline or wind or water. And I have no idea how. I'm in fifth grade and I can't solve problems this size. So we run inside looking for a fire extinguisher, but we find heirloom quilts and we throw those on the fire and you know what? We fixed the problem. Everybody get your huge air quotes out because like we fixed the problem, right? That's really not very fixed. Although the crisis is resolved, I have never thought I was going to be more dead in my life than when I'm imagining my dad as a city cop and the whole fire department from all the surrounding towns coming to put out the multiple field fire that we started, right? We tried to fix a very small problem. Our leaf wouldn't stay lit. We tried to fix it on our own and it became a disaster. Judah's self-pity and his focus or his trust placed in himself led to his literal death. Adam and Eve, when they tried to solve their sin problem on their own by trusting themselves, they became isolated from God. They became separated by their sin. They were in the garden separated from God, hiding in shame, beginning to blame. Okay, we have one last, I'm sorry, a third case study. It's the third and the last of its kind. We're back in Matthew chapter three now. So this is where John is ushering in the ministry of Jesus. And I'm reading from Matthew three, verse two, John is preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now he goes on, we'll get into some of these other verses later in the year sometime. Um, But he begins, he's preaching to all these people that are with him and then he sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming. I can only imagine they're dressed pretty differently because he can identify them immediately, probably traveling in a big group. And as they approach, He minces no words. Remember, this is the brood of vipers time. And he says in verse 9, And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children 
for Abraham. So where, we're just applying that interpretive lens once again, where did John the Baptist believe such that he could say it as he sees them coming? Where did John the Baptist believe that the Pharisees and the Sadducees would potentially place their trust were they ever to recognize that they had sin? Now, I don't know why last week's sin was over here, but it's over here again today in case you haven't noticed. Where would the Pharisees and the Sadducees place the sin? Let's just say they take that first step of repentance. They recognize that there's something wrong, that there's sin in their lives. Where does John the Baptist immediately in verse 9 believe that they are placing their trust? Now, some of you, maybe I've belabored the point. Maybe this is as obvious as 30-foot flaming letters of your mother's last name or first name in your yard at midnight. I don't know. As you consider where the Pharisees and Sadducees placed their trust, how they handled their sin, if they recognized it at all. Let me ask, as we did last week, when we explored David murdering Uriah, committing adultery with Bathsheba, we have the responsibility to slip ourselves into his sandals, metaphorically. So let me ask, today, instead of standing outside the text and pointing and identifying the sin as Jesus knows we're all great at, Remember the speck in our own eye? Let me ask, do we ever pretend that we can solve our own sin problems? I'll just admit that that's an issue for me. I would like to solve my own sin problem. Do we ever fashion our own solution? Do we ever grab a mason jar, fill it with gasoline, get out a 10-foot stick, and turn a small problem into an all-alarms, all-towns, come-and-put-out-the-fire problem? Or worst of all, do we, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, just say, you know what? Our religious heritage will cover our sin problem. Our cultural Christianity will take care of our sin problem. You may have met a cultural Christian. They might have, as Aaron mentioned last year, the coexist bumper sticker, garbage, right? That doesn't say that Jesus is the only way. They may have a love is love bumper sticker right? Cultural Christianity really says, like, I just kind of do it my way, and I love God. Cultural Christianity is heresy. Cultural Christianity is not Christianity. I don't even like the phrase. It's just that we have to call it what it is. It's people who associate themselves with Christians. So one man I met when I got the train to be a chaplain at the VA, we were standing outside of a doctor's office there at the building, Second floor, vividly remember, right outside the elevators, we're reflecting on a painting on the wall, and I just asked him about his faith. How, how are you handling the situation you're in? Is faith something you use to help yourself? And his response blew my mind. Every time it happened, it blew my mind. He actually said these words. I just kind of do what makes me happy, and I know that makes God happy. What? Take up your what, your cross, and make yourself happy? Are you kidding me, right? And then he goes on to make it even more insane and absurd. He says, yes, I have some uh, Native American ancestors, and I also dabble in Roman and Greek mythology. So I just kind of listen to the spirits, and I do what makes me happy. And I'm thinking, this is what some people in our community believe a Christian looks like. So it's incumbent upon us as people who say that we're Jesus followers to say this is what following Jesus looks like, and it's not that. 
Cultural Christianity means people do whatever they want. It's where the Pharisees and Sadducees placed their trust. It's that kind of pseudo-religious-y sort of heritage that will turn our faith into a farce. It makes us like Pharisees and Sadducees that sit in judgment when we see sin instead of saying, I have this same sin problem. I have it. I just trust someone different with it. In our final case study this morning, we're returning to King David. If you want to turn to Psalm 51, I'll be reading from there. We return to King David, and we return to the time after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband. Nathan has confronted him with the story of the baby ewe lamb, name on the shirt, family loves this baby ewe lamb. Rich man murders it, kills it, and takes it from the poor man. And David finds out from Nathan that he is that guy. He is that rich man with that sin problem. I'm going to invite you all to apply this this framework that even so briefly we developed this morning, but I'm going to invite you to apply this interpretive framework as I read this psalm. Apply all of our case studies, right? Apply them all to this now and ask the question, does David have faith? Faith in what? How does David attempt to solve his sin problem? Use that lens that we peered through at our first three case studies and examine this psalm, asking the question, where does David place his trust? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Our first three case studies, Genesis, Adam and Eve, Judas and Matthew, and the Pharisees and Sadducees each turned inward with their sin. They each attempted to create their own solution for their sin problem. Now remember, we're studying the word repentance because John the Baptist comes onto the scene in Matthew 3 and initiates a ministry that is to launch Jesus' ministry. And both ministries. Both men begin their ministry with the same word, and it is a command to repent. It is why we have to understand this command. The church is founded on it. As Christians, we do it every day to grow closer to Jesus. As unbelievers, it is our first step in becoming 
a follower of Christ. So today we understand the first step is recognizing the wrong. And now we understand that the next step in repentance is trusting the Lord with our sin. So as we open the scriptures, I'm curious today if the Lord is speaking to your heart. If you are able to slip into the sandals of a sinner like David, and as you, you bow your head, I'm wondering if, if the Lord is poking or prodding or touching your heart in some way this morning because of a sin that maybe only you know about. Maybe a time at work when you weren't completely forthright. Maybe a time at school when you took the wrong path. Maybe an encounter with your friends that there's no way you can go back and fix. And now you're considering how you might be able to solve that sin problem with yet another mess and just hope for the best. Maybe God is moving in your heart today and you have a prayer of repentance that you need to pray. It might be that you need to tell him, God, I'm sorry for trying to handle my own sin problem. I've got these lousy fig leaves here covering me. I tried to make some clothes. Maybe you've exploded a leaf on fire to a 20-foot flaming circle under the playhouse. It might be that you have repentance today to make. It might be that you want to pray this 51st Psalm as I read it this morning as a prayer of repentance. Before we sing, I'll be reading the 51st Psalm. You may want to pray it. You may want to pray something else to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash away all my iniquity, all my sin, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Father, this morning as we're before you as your people, the church, called out to be the example, Father, we ask that you would help us trust you with our sin problem. Father, when by your Holy Spirit you help us recognize the wrong in our lives, the sin that we live with, it's our prayer that you would help us to take the next step, to trust you with that sin problem. Father, we thank you for the way that Jesus made 
the example and the life he lived. Father, that we now have a hope to be fully redeemed and restored, to be your family, to be seen as you see Jesus as righteous. Father, it's our prayer that as people who follow you and want to be like you, that you would help us be less everyday people and more fully devoted followers of Christ. We pray that by your Holy Spirit at work in our hearts, that we would be just that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.